All right. Well, please turn with me in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, and we'll read uh, verses 1 to 10, but we'll pick up in verse 5 today with our uh, exposition. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, You are a priest forever according to to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we pray that you would again teach us, Lord, and confirm to us, Lord, the role of Jesus Christ as high priest over the household of God. And Lord, how it is that he is ministering in this way, Lord, serving in the tabernacle, not of this creation. And Lord, bringing everything that we are, both our persons, Lord, our worship, Lord, our service to you, all of that is being presented to you on our behalf through his mediation as high priest over us. So, Lord, help us to understand how essential, how crucial it is to have such a high priest over the household of faith and that it is only through him that we can be made right in your sight and that we can be acceptable to you. So, Lord, teach us today. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And it is in Christ in that we pray. Amen. Well, we remember in Colossians 2.17, it says, Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Right? There are those things that are shadows, and there are those things or that thing, that one who is the substance of these things. In the Old Covenant, God communicated spiritual truths to the people through many various shadows. And these shadows were God's ways of instructing the people of the coming salvation that would be brought about through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is key to understanding the book of Hebrews. It is key to understanding the relationship between the Old Covenant and New Covenant. And it is key to understanding the entirety of the Bible. Right? We cannot interpret the Bible correctly without having this in our mind. All Scripture, in one way or another, has reference to Jesus Christ. If we are not seeing Christ in the Scriptures, then we are not reading and interpreting the Scriptures correctly. And this is the veil or the darkness that persists over the Jews. Even as it was during the days of Christ, so it continues on many of them, even in our own day. They were searching the Scriptures because they thought that in them they had eternal life, and yet they failed to see that the very Scriptures they searched were testifying of Jesus Christ but they refused to come to him that they might have life. It says in John chapter 5. They were familiar with the scriptures, but they were not allowing the scriptures to go to their proper end, namely to testify of Jesus Christ, his person and his work as the basis for the forgiveness of sins. And this is what the apostle is undertaking in the book of Hebrews and why he has entered into this teaching concerning the office and the function of high priest. Because we cannot understand the high priest without seeing it in reference to Jesus Christ. And so he began in Hebrews chapter 5 verses 1 to 4, describing the high priest as was established under the law. First, he talked about his nature, that the high priest was taken from among men. He talked about his duty, which was to serve on behalf of men and things pertaining to God. 
He talked about his sympathy in that he was beset with weakness, therefore he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. He talked about his primary function, which was to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, both for himself and for the people he serves. And then he talked about his call, that no one took this office onto himself, but was called by God even as Aaron was. Now, in verses 5 to 10, he's going to take these truths and apply them to Jesus Christ and show that all of these things are fulfilled and even magnified in the person and work of Christ. And this is necessary for two reasons. First, to prove that the reason for the priesthood of Aaron and its continuation for 1,400 years, the primary purpose of that priesthood was to teach and prepare the people for the priesthood of Jesus Christ. We must understand the purpose of this office if we are rightly to understand our salvation. Our salvation is impossible without Jesus Christ serving as our great high priest. And the priesthood of Aaron was given in order to prepare and instruct the people in the coming priesthood of Christ. But also it is necessary to prove that the priesthood of Aaron has come to an end, and in every way it is inferior to the priesthood of Christ. It is no longer necessary, and now, if it continues, it is even contrary to and contradictory to the ministry of Christ. And that applies specifically to the church that he's writing to because these Jewish Christians are being tempted to go back to the old ways and to go back to the priesthood as was established by Aaron but without seeing it fulfilled in Christ. Aaron's priesthood has value only in it prefiguring the priesthood of Christ. But once Christ comes, and once he takes up that office of high priest, then any priesthood, even that of Aaron, serves to undermine and detract from Jesus Christ. And therefore, those things must be done away with, and they must be set aside so that the substance has center stage and nothing is detracting from him. This is his purpose, to show the preeminence of Christ as great high priest by comparing and contrasting him to the priesthood of Aaron. And that is what we'll begin today, starting in verse 5. So let's read Hebrews 5, verse 5. It says, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, But he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Here, so also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become high priest. We understand and know that this office was accompanied with glory and honor. It was an honor for God to bestow this upon Aaron. And this refers back to verse 4. Aaron did not take this honor by himself. He received it when he was called by God. God elevated him above his brothers and conferred this honor upon Aaron. Well, the same is true of Christ. Christ did not take this honor onto himself. He did not come as some man who was out for fame and fortune and for self-glory and self-exaltation. But rather, he received what was given to him by God. And there is an agreement between the call of Aaron and the call of Christ. Aaron did not take the honor of being appointed by God as high priest for himself. He received it by God by way of a call. God called Aaron to this task. God granted and conferred this honor to him. So also Christ did not glorify himself. He did not come and seize this office illegitimately. He did not usurp the very will of God and seize this for himself, but rather he was called by God to this task. God the Father called Jesus Christ to the role as great high priest over the household of God. He gave this honor to his son, Jesus Christ. And this is why it says in John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He did nothing on his own initiative. He did not have the initiative one day, wake up and say, you know what, I want to be high priest and I want this honor for myself, so I'm going to go take it and seize it by force. He never did those things, but he always submitted to the will of God. He did not circumvent the law of God so as to become high priest. We know that the high priest came from the tribe of Levi. 
But Jesus was not descended from that tribe. And from the tribe of Jesus, there's nothing said of priesthood. So if Jesus had seized the office of priest on his own initiative, then he would be contradicting and circumventing the very law of God. He would be no different than King Saul, who took up this office of priest on his own initiative in contradiction to the law of God and was rebuked by Samuel. Or as we've read about King Uzziah, who also took up this office of high priest, took up the duties and responsibilities of that office on his own initiative, contrary to the law of God when he sought to go into the temple and burn incense that was only for the priest to do. And God rebuked him, and God judged him by giving him leprosy. Well, did Jesus do the same? Did he seize and take what did not belong to him whenever he became high priest over the household of faith? And the answer is no, because he did not transgress the commandment of God, but he received his priesthood by an extraordinary call from God. Just as Aaron was called and legitimately entered into the role of priesthood and the legitimacy of his descendants to serve in this capacity as high priest was rooted in that original call of Aaron. So Jesus also received a call and he legitimately entered into this role, into this office as great high priest over the household of God because he received a call from his father to this. God can grant his gifts and callings as he sees fit. And God can grant that the household of Aaron would serve as high priest in a typical way, but then take that away from them and grant it to another of his own choosing who will serve as high priest in the fulfillment of that thing, in the substance of the things that they signified. He can do whatever he wants, and he can confer it upon anyone he wants. And God's pleasure is to confirm all of this glory and honor upon Jesus Christ, to give it to his only begotten Son. So he did not take the honor, the glory for himself, but rather it was given to him by God, given to Jesus Christ, who is both fully God and who is fully man. And here specifically, when it's talking about him receiving this honor or this glory, it is speaking specifically of his humanity. The humanity of Christ was dignified, it was glorified by this call to priesthood. Right, in relationship to the divine nature of Jesus, his becoming high priest is an act of humility. Because for him to serve as high priest, what does he have to take upon himself? He has to have human flesh. He has to be made like us in every way. And for the eternal divine son of God, the second person of the Trinity, for him to take on human flesh, this is an act of infinite uh, condescension for him to do so. It is an act of humility for Jesus to take on human flesh. Philippians chapter 2 teaches us this. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. For him to unite our humanity to his divinity is an act of humility for Jesus to do so. Philippians 2, verse 5 says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here, in speaking of his divine nature, when he took on human flesh, this was an act of humility. It was an act of condescension for him to come and to take on our nature and to descend onto the earth and to be subjected to a life of weakness, to all the sufferings and hardships that we experience in this world. So in relationship to the divine nature, his becoming high priest is an act of humility for him to do so. But in relationship to his human nature, his becoming high priest 
is an exaltation. It is God glorifying him in his person. And he has this role as both God and man. As the man Christ Jesus, he did not glorify himself, but only took that glory which was granted to him from the Father. And God's pleasure was to glorify Jesus as both the Son of God and the Son of Man by granting to him this office of great high priest. He gave it to him, his only begotten Son. Now in Hebrews chapter 5, 5, he brings forward a testimony to prove the call of God the Father given to Jesus the high priest. And this is from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 Verses 1 to 12, he's already brought this up in chapter 1. In the case of proving the dignity of Christ, his exaltation above that of angels, because God never referred to any of his angels as his son, now he brings forward this passage again to prove that Jesus did not enter into the office of high priest on his own initiative, but rather it was given to him on the basis of the fact that he is the Son of God. Psalm 2, and we'll read the entirety of the psalm. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar, in the people's devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he will not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here, the verse that is quoted in our passage in Hebrews chapter 5 is verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, in Psalm 2, the prophet is specifically addressing the role of Jesus as king, right? This is what it's talking about in Psalm 2, that he has made him king over all of the world, and he has given to him the nations as his heritage. Yet included in this role of king is the entirety of the role as mediator for his people. By asserting that the son is the anointed one, He is given the right and the call by God to reign as king. But included in that right to reign as king is also his right to be the priest over the household of God. God the Father grants to his Christ the right to rule the nations. And included in this right, by way of implication, is also the right to serve as high priest over the household of God and to serve as the true prophet of God who reveals the will of God. We must understand these three offices, these three roles, all find their fulfillment in Christ. He is the prophet of God, He is the priest of God, and he is the king of God. He is prophet, priest, and king. These three offices were displayed, exhibited throughout the Old Testament through various individuals. Some men were prophets, some men were kings, some men served as priests. But no man in the Old Covenant served in all three capacities at one time. They were not found in this one person. Yet all of these... Find their fulfillment in who? In the one person who is Jesus Christ. And God gives this to him because he is his son. This is why God confers these honors onto him. When Jesus, when the Son of God took on our human nature, when he took on human flesh, then because of his divine nature, God bestowed all of these blessings, all of this glory and honor upon his humanity as well. So that these roles, these offices, which were fulfilled by men, men served as prophets, men served as priests, men served as king, 
These were all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king. And in Zechariah chapter 6, Zechariah chapter 6, verses 11 to 15, there it speaks of Christ in that he will sit as both king and priest, and that these two roles, these two offices, will be united in his ministry. Zechariah chapter 6, verses 11 to 15. Zechariah 6, verse 11. says, Take silver and gold and make an ornate crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Here, he, the branch, and the branch is a way of referring to the Messiah, the Christ, the mediator. He will sit on his throne, and he will also be a priest on his throne. And there will be peace between these two offices. They will be joined and united together in this one person who is the branch, and the branch is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The honor and glory of being prophet, priest, and king over the church has been granted to Jesus Christ alone. No one else can claim these offices. He is the only one who has a legitimate claim to them, and this is a glory he received from his Father. God the Father would never confer this honor on any mere mortal man. Though he did give it temporarily in a a lesser way to certain men in the Old Testament, but this was in order to prefigure and to show what he would give in its fullness to his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. All power and all authority in and over the church, right? The work of mediator between God and man, the source of eternal salvation. These things belong uniquely and exclusively to Jesus Christ. And this is why he and he alone must be the object of our faith. All of our hope for salvation must rest upon his person and his work without any assistance from any other object, whether that be an angel or a man or a dead saint or the mother of our Lord or our own works. We cannot depend on anything to assist or help Jesus in these things because he and he alone possesses all of this. And anyone who seeks to confer this honor upon anyone or anything detracts from the glory of Christ and sets himself in opposition to the will and purpose of God. Jesus does not need Aaron to help him redeem his people. Jesus does not need his mother to come and help him redeem his people. He does not need the dead saints. He does not need living saints. He doesn't need anyone to help him be the source of eternal salvation and to serve as high priest over his people. He doesn't need you and me. He doesn't need our efforts and our works. He is capable of bringing about salvation on his own. His own arm is strong enough to fulfill and to accomplish everything necessary for our redemption. And if we grant to some person or something a part of that dignity, a part of that honor of providing redemption or bringing it about, then we are necessarily detracting. We're taking away from Jesus Christ. We are taking the glory that belongs to him, and we are giving it to another, and this is idolatry. And we can't commit idolatry and serve the true and living God. It is very glorious. It is a great honor for Jesus to be the source of eternal salvation, the sole source of eternal salvation. Anyone who is admitted into this work alongside of Christ so that our salvation is based upon Jesus and based upon our own good works, or our salvation is based upon Jesus and our baptism, or based upon Jesus and the prayers of the saints, or Mother Mary, or the angels. We are robbing him of his glory, and he is very jealous for his glory. And not only is Christ jealous for his glory, his Father is jealous for his glory, and he will not give that glory 
to anyone else. And anyone who seeks to take it will be destroyed. They will be destroyed by God. He and he alone will receive all the glory and honor as the sole accomplisher of our salvation. And this is the way it must be. This is why he is high priest over the household of God on the basis of his relationship to God the Father as the only begotten Son. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. It says, I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Notice here that when Jesus takes this book and opens its seal, is there anyone assisting him in doing this? Does anyone come alongside of him and help him bear this burden and carry this weight? No, and there's no one else found who can do this. His mother does not come and assist him. The apostles do not come and assist him. The prophets of the Old Testament do not come and assist him. No saint comes and assists him. The Pope does not assist him. We do not assist him. The 24 elders do not assist him. None of the angels come to his aid and help. He does it all by himself. And connected to his opening of the seals is the fact that he also is the one who was slain, who purchased people for God with his blood. And he is the one who makes them a kingdom and priest to our God. All of it comes from Jesus Christ. Because God has granted this honor, this glory to him. And then in heaven one day, we will give to him the glory that he and he alone deserves as the author of our salvation, the source of eternal salvation. Hebrews 5 verse 6, another testimony. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Here, the apostle brings forward another testimony from the Psalms, a messianic psalm, where the call of Christ as high priest is explicitly mentioned. In Psalm 2, it was implicit. In Psalm 110, it is explicitly mentioned. So let's read Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verses 1 to 7. Psalm 110 Verses 1 to 7 record by the Spirit, through the prophet David, a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Here again in this passage, the prophet David, by the Spirit, is speaking these things to us. He's writing them to us, revealing and recording them to us, 
to us, but he's recording a conversation that took place between God the Father and God the Son. When the Father and the Son entered into the covenant of redemption, whereby the Father would send the Son to be the Redeemer of sinful man, and the Father agreed to glorify his Son, and the Son agreed to come and to undertake everything that is necessary for the redemption of his people. When the Son agreed to do this, the Father swore to him that when he took on human flesh, that when he took up the work as mediator between God and man, that when he offered up his life as a sacrifice for our sins, that God would make him a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And clearly in Psalm 110, it is the Lord God, God the Father, who is speaking to the Lord of David, who is called in Psalm 110 verse 1, my Lord, and it is God the Son. God the Father speaking to God the Son. God the Father swearing and saying he will never change his mind to make the incarnate Son of God a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And again, this proves that Jesus did not take this honor from himself. But who did he receive it from? He received it from his Father. He swore it to him. He gave it to him by way of an oath. He gave this to him. And this oath existed before the priesthood of Aaron. God granted this to his son even before Aaron was established, before he even existed. And Aaron's priesthood is built upon the basis of this oath made between the father and son. So he did not take it for himself, but received it when he was called by God. Just as Aaron was called and entered into his office legitimately, so Jesus was called and entered into his office of high priest legitimately according to the will of God. So no one can accuse Jesus of being some rogue agent, being some madman out there going around seizing and taking things that do not belong to him. There is a similarity or a continuity between Aaron and Christ, between the shadow and the substance. But also, there is a magnification. There is greater honor and glory in the call of Christ than there was in the call of Aaron. And this is the way it is between shadows and substance. There is always similarity. There are points where there is agreement between these, and then there are points where the substance is magnifying whatever was true of the shadow, or it's seen in a greater measure or in a greater way than it was in the shadow that was there in a typical way. The call of Jesus as high priest was in every way more excellent and more glorious than the call of Aaron. For Aaron received his call through the ministry of Moses and through the consecration of Moses. Moses consecrated Aaron to this position and God called Aaron to it through the mediation of Moses. And Aaron's call to be high priest was accompanied with many outward ceremonies and rituals in order to give to Aaron a glory and an honor that he in his person did not possess. However, when God the Father called Jesus to this role as high priest, he did not need it to be accompanied with ceremonies and rituals in order to cover the weaknesses and the lack of glory and honor that existed in Jesus because Jesus has all glory and honor. He did not need to beautify Jesus with ceremonies and rituals because Jesus already possesses all beauty and all glory and all honor. We remember in Exodus 28 verse 2. Exodus 28 verse 2. In terms of Aaron serving in this capacity as high priest, it says that you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. Right? Aaron had to be dressed in this way in order to beautify him, in order to give to him a symbolic type of glory. Because he's just a normal man like anyone else. And in and of himself, in his own person, there is no glory, there is no beauty found in the person of Aaron. Yet this role, this office, was to be an emblem or a picture of Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus Christ is very beautiful, and Jesus Christ possesses all glory. So Aaron had to be dressed up, right, or he had to have this garb in order to bring to him a glory and a beauty that he did not possess in his own person. But does Jesus need these kinds of garbs? Does he need this type of thing in order to give to him beauty and glory? And the answer is no, because he possesses all glory and he possesses all beauty in his person. So it says in Psalm 45, verse 2, Psalm 45, verse 2, You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Jesus is fairer than all of the sons of men, and the grace of God is poured out on his lips. Also, when Christ received his call, he was addressed as son, as the son of God, a title that is uniquely given to him. Did God address Aaron as his only begotten son when he called him to the office of high priest? No, he did not because it would not be true of him. But when he called Jesus to the office of high priest, he addressed him as his son. We remember Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5. Hebrews chapter 1, actually we'll read verses 4 and 5. It says, Having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. God the Father has never addressed any angel, nor has he ever addressed any man as his son in the way that he addresses Jesus Christ. It is unique to him, and when God called him to this office of high priest, he did so on the basis of this unique relationship that exists between God the Father and God the Son. So, there it is more glorious in his call to high priest. Also, when Christ received his call, it was confirmed by an oath. God swore, he swore, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He was confirmed in this call or in this office by an oath, by the swearing of God the Father. And if we go to Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews 7, verses 17 to 22, here the apostle brings this up, and we'll deal with all these things more fully as we get there. Uh, but, But there's a lot to talk about in terms of the priesthood of Christ. Hebrews 7, 17, For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For, on the one hand, there is the setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath. For they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, Through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Right? The priesthood of Christ was accompanied with this oath from God, showing that the covenant that he administers and the priesthood that he possesses is better, it is greater than the priesthood given to Aaron or the covenant that Aaron administered his priesthood under. Also, we see here that Jesus' priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek. After the order of Melchizedek, who was exalted before Aaron ever even existed, and who was superior to Aaron in every way because, and this will be brought up later on as well, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, and in doing so, Levi paid tithes through him, and also Aaron paid tithes. And it shows that he is greater than all of these. So in all of these ways, Jesus is superior to Aaron. His call was superior to the call of Aaron because it was accompanied with much more glory and honor, and this is the way it has to be. It must be this way because Jesus Christ must have preeminence over all things, including all of those shadows and institutions of the old covenant. It must be this way because these things represent the priestly ministry of Christ, 
right? Aaron's ministry, Aaron's priesthood, his descendants, right? They were representations of what Christ would come to do. But all of these men were sinful men. So how could they ever perfectly represent the ministry of Jesus Christ? And whether we're talking about the office of prophet, priest, king, or the elements associated with the worship, such as the temple, the altar, the sacrifices, the lampstands, whatever existed in that form of worship that had glory and honor attached to it, that glory and honor ultimately was derived from Jesus Christ. The dignity of those things depended upon their relationship to him. So if they had some glory and honor from him, then it necessarily follows that his glory must be greater, seeing that they derive their glory from him. And this is why it says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3, He has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Jesus has more glory than Moses, than Aaron, than Joshua, than David, more glory than the temple, than the Ark of the Covenant, than the golden lampstand, than the high priestly garments, than the table of presence, than the altar of incense. The glory of all of those things in the Old Testament all depended upon Jesus Christ. Their relationship to Christ, they derived their glory from Him. But He is the substance of those things. He is the fulfillment of those things. So it is necessary that in every way he possesses more glory and more honor than any of these shadows that so dimly represented him in the Old Testament. And here, this is why his priesthood is greater. Now on to verse 7. Now, just as a point of reference, he does introduce the person of Melchizedek in verse 6. And he refers to him again in verse 10. But the entirety of chapter 7 is taken up with this topic, so we'll deal more fully with Melchizedek when we get to chapter 7. But now we'll deal with verse 7. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Here, in the days of his flesh... This is referring to the life of Jesus from his incarnation to his death. These are the days of his flesh that the apostle is referring to. Here, flesh means human nature that has not yet been glorified. He doesn't mean sinful flesh because Jesus did not have a sinful flesh, but he did have flesh and bone just like we have. And when he was incarnate, when he was born... His flesh was not glorified flesh yet, but it was a flesh that is subjected to all of our weaknesses. When the Son of God, though, took on human flesh, He did so for all eternity. Right? Even now, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and He still possesses human flesh. He still has a human body and a human soul. He did not take on a human body only on his time on earth and then put that body away. But he will maintain and continue with a human body for all eternity. But the body that Jesus has in heaven now is a glorified body. A body that is not subjected to weaknesses, to sufferings, to death, to the things that are associated in this life. So here, when he says, in the days of his flesh, he's referring to the life of Jesus Christ from his birth until his death. During that time, in the days of his flesh, what was true of his existence? What was he exposed to constantly during his life? Well, it says in Isaiah chapter 53 that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrows. His life was uninterrupted sorrows, hardships, grief, difficulties. He went and he experienced many trials and many tribulations and many hardships of this life. He was exposed to all the frailties, the weaknesses, the hardships, the afflictions that we are associated with in this life. He was exposed to hunger, to thirst, to weariness, to labor, to sorrow, to grief, to fear, to pain, right? His human body could be wounded, 
right? We know that they punched him, they slapped him, they struck him in those ways, they scourged him, they whipped him, and when they did, he felt the pain of those things. And it affected his human body. He bled, he bruised. All of those things he was subjected to, and even subjected to death itself. Though he was free from sin, he was sinless and pure. He was the spotless Lamb of God, Yet, during the days of his flesh, he was exposed to all of the miseries of this world that men experience as a result of the curse of sin upon this world. And this because he became sin for us. He suffered the full effects of sin and the curse of the law on our behalf. Though he was sinless, the effects of sin still were upon him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He knew no sin. He was pure. He never sinned against God, but he was made to be sin and to experience the effects of sin on our behalf, though maintaining his purity and his sinlessness, his righteousness in all of these things. Now, during the days of his flesh, when he was exposed to all of these miseries, what did he do? It says he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud cryings and tears. This he did in his role as high priest. Not merely as a godly man who was suffering hardships, certainly that was true, but also as our great high priest, because that's the subject that he's talking about in this passage. He's talking about Jesus as the great high priest over the household of God. And as high priest, he offered up to God prayers and supplications for deliverance. He did this on our behalf. Because when God delivers Christ, who else is he delivering in him? He's delivering his people in him because he is our head. He is our representative. So whatever he does is not merely for himself, but it is also for our benefit as well. And when he is offering up prayers and supplications for God to deliver him, he is including in those prayers and supplications not only his own personal deliverance, but also the deliverance of his entire body or of his people who are comprised of the church. And here we see that he's using this sacrificial language to describe the prayers and supplications. He is said to offer them up to God. He offered these things to God, which if we go back to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, it's the same word he uses here in describing the priests offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. Hebrews 5, 1, Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. When Jesus is offering up his prayers and supplications, he is pleading with God to deliver him and to be pleased to accept his sacrifice for our sins and for God to deliver him and the proof that God was pleased to accept this sacrifice for sins is by God delivering him from death, by raising him from the dead. So these prayers for deliverance are not merely for himself, but for our sake as well. He's offering these prayers on our behalf, and this is part of the role of the high priest. Even Aaron, in the Old Covenant, offered prayers and supplications on behalf of the people. Leviticus 16, Leviticus 16, 20 to 22 Here, on the Day of Atonement, when the scapegoat was brought, part of the ministry of Aaron was offering prayers on behalf of the people and confessing the sins of the people and placing them there onto the head of the goat. 1620 says, When he finishes atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting in the altar... He shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat 
and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regards to all their sins. He shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. There, part of Aaron's duty was to offer these prayers and supplications to God, to plead with God to receive the sacrifice in place of the people, to punish the goat in the wilderness, right, in a desolate place, instead of punishing the people because of their sins. Well, who is the fulfillment of all of these things? Who is the one who went to a desolate place, who went outside the camp and suffered outside the gate for the sins of his people? And it is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is himself the one confessing our sins, placing our sins not upon a goat, but upon himself. He is the one who does this, and we're reminded that not only is Jesus our high priest, but he is also our sacrifice. He is both the high priest who confesses our sins over the sacrifice, and who is the sacrifice he's placing the sin upon. He's putting it upon himself. He fulfills all of these roles in his one person. And in Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10 verses 1 to 10, it tells us this. Hebrews 10 verse 1 says, For the law, since it only has a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of the things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had any consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have not taken pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. And by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Right? In order to bring about our peace, our reconciliation with God, Jesus, our high priest, also had to be Jesus, our sacrifice. He had to offer his body up as a sacrifice for our sins. And our sin had to be imputed upon his body, upon him, right? He bore our sins in his body on the tree. And then the curse of the law, the wrath of God against sin, must fall upon him. And this is why it says that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. In Isaiah chapter 53 verse 8. When he is offering his prayers and supplications to God, certainly he is doing so for his own sake, but he's also doing so as the head of his people, as the great high priest over the household of God, as the representative of his people, that God might receive his sacrifice, that his body that is being offered up as a substitute for ours that God would be pleased to accept it and that God would deliver him from the powers of death and that in doing so, God would set free all of his people from sin and from death. But for this to happen, he had to become sin for us and he had to take the stroke of justice that was due to us. And this is why his prayers and supplications were accompanied, he says, with loud cries and tears. His prayers were with loud cries and tears. Now, this was true of him all of the days of his life, but especially true of him in the culminations of his sufferings that happened on the cross. We know, we just studied it on Wednesday nights from Matthew chapter 26, that when Jesus went to the garden and was there praying to God, he says that he is in agony, that he was sorrowful even to the point of death, 
Now is my soul troubled as he's thinking about these things, right? That he was there sweating, as it were, great drops of blood because of the agony, because of the distress, because of the sorrow that was on him as he contemplated and thought about the wrath of God that he was going to bear. And he prayed there to God, if possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will. And I will do it if this is the way that it must be. There in the garden, he prayed to God. He offered prayers and supplications to God. And certainly those prayers were accompanied with loud cries and with tears. And also on the cross, did he not cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what he cried out on the cross. A great cry, cries with prayers and supplications, with loud crying and tears to God. This is what he did, sorrowful, grieved, distressed, even to the point of death, because he understood what he was about to face as our substitute. The stroke that was due to us was going to fall upon him. And that stroke is the stroke of divine justice. The curse of the law, the penalty of death, would be executed upon him. And this is why he prayed with loud cries and tears. But then who did he pray to? He prayed to the one who is able to save him from death. He committed his entire life into the will and power of God. His will, Christ's will, was in perfect harmony with the will of the Father. He did not run from the Lord like Jonah did, but he submitted to God and entrusted his life to him who judges justly. And it says here that he was heard because of his piety. God answered his prayer. God delivered him. God saved him from death. Now we have to ask, how did God save him from death? Because he did not save him from death by the avoidance of death. God did not deliver him by translating him immediately from earth into heaven. God could have done that. He did that with Enoch. He did that with Elijah. They were translated from earth to heaven without tasting death. And certainly God could have done this with his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. But if God did that, if he translated him immediately to heaven so that he never experienced death, then what would that mean for all of us? We'd all be dead in our trespasses and sins, right? We'd all be destined for an eternity in hell because we would still be under the curse of the law. So how did God deliver him from death? Well, not by the avoidance of death. He did not spare him from experiencing death. This he must do in order to redeem his people. And as our great high priest, he must offer up something as a sacrifice for our sins. And what he offered up was his own body. However, God did hear him. And God did answer his prayer. And God did deliver him not by the avoidance of death, but by overcoming death, by victory over death through his resurrection from the dead. His death was only temporary, for he rose from the grave with the power of an indestructible life, and now death no longer has any dominion over the body of Christ, over his humanity. And who else does it have no dominion over? His people. This is why he had to undergo it. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 8 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. God answered his prayers because of his piety. He answered his loud cries and tears because of his holy reverence for God that led him to always submit to the will of God, to always be obedient to God, even when that meant facing his most harsh, his most severe trial, even obedient to the point of death. Though he was accompanied with all of our weaknesses, with a weak body as we have, though he was filled with dread, though his soul was tr uh, troubled even to the point of death, at the thought of enduring all of the sufferings of the cross, 
Yet in the midst of all of this, he still was an obedient son. And his mind was resolute in doing the will of God, seeing that it was God's will for him to suffer such a cruel death on the cross, seeing that it was the only way that sinners could be reconciled to God and that God could be glorified in their redemption. When he sees these things, he sets his face like flint to go to the cross. And like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, so he willingly went to the cross, bearing its shame and reproach. And because he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, God has highly exalted him. God has bestowed on him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when God raised him from the dead, he gave to him and to him alone the position of highest honor. He glorified him to the right hand of God the Father. And our humanity is still united to him and has been glorified to that position of highest honor. And now he occupies that position as Jesus, the Son of God, as the great high priest over the household of God, as the one who was made like us in every way except without sin. And where our high priest is there we will be also. That is the final resting place for the people of God. Where he is, there we will be with him. In the days of his flesh, he was subjected to sufferings and sorrows, the sorrows of this life. But now, being exalted in heaven, these things no longer can touch him. He has no experience of these things in his person. And as it is with Jesus... So it will be with us. This is our hope. Our hope is that where he is, there we will also be. Isn't this what he says in John chapter 14 to his own disciples? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would not have told you. And I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again that where I am, you may be also. We are currently in the days of our flesh. This is the time of our sorrows, the time of our griefs. But there is a blessed life that is awaiting for us. There is a heavenly life where we will no longer endure or experience the many hardships that are associated with this life. Where all of the effects of sin will be gone and we will be at perfect rest, at perfect peace, at perfect happiness with our Lord. He will wipe every tear from our eyes and we will no longer be subjected to death, to sin, to mourning, to crying, to pain. For all of those things will have passed away. And we have great confidence in this because we have a great high priest over the household of faith. Our forerunner is there right now and we see him there by faith seated at the right hand of God. And while we wait for the full consummation of this salvation, we have to follow the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was patient. He waited. He submitted himself to the will of God. He prayed. He had prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who is able to deliver him. And God heard him. And God will hear us as well when we offer our prayers through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. This is the time for us to have our sojourning, to have the days of our flesh, to have our sufferings. But just as Jesus had his and now has entered into glory, so also we must have ours. But there is a glory that awaits us, and we must patiently endure until we enter into that rest. So let us then press on. And while we press on, who should we keep our eyes fixed upon? Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, and Lord, how it so perfectly instructs us, Lord, in the way of righteousness, Lord, in salvation, and in everything that you have done, Lord, in order to reconcile sinful men to a holy God. Lord, we confess that, Lord, we are sinful men, and that, Lord, we are deserving of death, Lord, we're deserving of condemnation. 
that the full curse of the law, Lord, that it should come upon us. But Lord, we thank you that you have provided, Lord, a source of salvation, a great high priest who has come, who has descended from heaven, who has taken on our flesh, who has offered up a sacrifice for our sins, and who has now been exalted to your right hand, where he continues to serve as our mediator and an intercessor for us on our behalf to reconcile us to you. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, and we pray, Lord, that we would put all of our hope and confidence in him and in him alone. Lord, may we never trust in any person, Lord, in anyone, whether dead or living, Lord, not in ourselves, Lord, certainly not in our own works or our own abilities. Lord, for how could our works, Lord, even the good deeds that you produce in us, Lord, they're still filled with so much corruption because they come from us. And Lord, how could these ever gain our approval in your sight? But Lord, we see that there is one who does have your approval, that you love dearly, who you are well pleased with, your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, you have conferred all glory and honor upon him. And that when he is standing as our head and as our representative, just as you are pleased with him, so you are pleased with us. And, Lord, just as you have glorified him, so you will also glorify us. Lord, may we never cease to understand and, Lord, to come to a greater and a fuller, a deeper understanding of all that Christ has done for us. And Lord, how our salvation is so dependent upon him. Lord, teach us this more and more. Lord, that we would never trust in anything that comes from us, but we would only trust in him and in him alone. So Lord, we thank you for this salvation and we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to enter into a fuller understanding of it. And Lord, just as you have glorified Christ, and just as he experienced the days of his flesh and was patient and trusted in you and committed his life into your care, so, Lord, we pray that we would do the same. Lord, that we would not grumble and complain, Lord, under your providence, Lord, or under what it is that you allot for us in this life, but rather that we would entrust ourselves to him who judges justly, and that, Lord, just as you delivered Jesus from death, Lord, we pray as well that you would deliver us. Lord, save us from the curse of the law. Lord, save us from our sin. Lord, save us from death and from eternal condemnation. And Lord, we pray that you would bring us safely into your heavenly kingdom through our Lord and Savior. So Father, we thank you for this. And we offer up our prayers and our very worship today. Lord, on the basis of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we offer it through him as our great high priest over the household of faith. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.